schoolers, you're dismissed. Middle schoolers will be going up to the youth room at this time where they will have their lesson. The rest of us, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Hebrews. So if you open up your Bible, the back of your Bible, right before James, there's Hebrews, the sixth chapter. We'll begin reading at verse 9. If you're visiting us here at Calvary Chapel, we go through the Word of God chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse, as we go through the books of the Bible. And so um, we have been in Hebrews. It's been an incredible study. We've gone through chapter 6, verse 8, so we'll pick it up at verse 9. Listen, if you need a Bible, we have some extra ones uh, that Jim has in the back. He'll be happy to uh, hand you a Bible if you're towards the front. We've got some on the front platform. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll begin reading that verse 9. But as you're doing that, keep in mind that the writer of Hebrews here, is, he's moved by the Holy Spirit. Probably it, it's most likely Paul the Apostle that's the human instrument that would write the book of Hebrews, perhaps translated in Greek by Dr. Luke. But we know that the Holy Spirit is inspiring whoever is the author of the book of Hebrews to write these words down before us this morning, given those initial readers, the Hebrew believers, some warnings. And there are warnings for you and for me as well. In chapter 2, they were warned not to drift away from Christ, from what they know to be truth but rather you are to be anchored in the truth and you're to be anchored in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, he warned them about a hardness of heart and unbelief. And moving into chapter 4, he would give the example of the children of Israel that when they came out of Egypt and into the wilderness, uh, received the law of God, the covenant of God, they would move up to the border of the promised land according to the book of Numbers. And they did not go into the promised land. They did not enter into their Canaan rest because of disobedience, because of unbelief, because of the hardness of their heart. So the writer here is telling that you and I as Christians that we have a rest that we can enter into, and that is Jesus, who is the captain of our salvation. He's done the work. He cried out from the cross, it is finished, and he is our compassionate and merciful high priest. And then chapter 5, they were warned, and we as well, about spiritual immaturity because of a dullness of hearing. You're only taking in the milk of the word when you should be taking in the meat of the word. And so he exhorts them to take in the meat of the word so you can move verse 1 of the chapter here to perfection. And that word perfection doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect or you and I are going to be perfect on this side of eternity but it's simply a word that speaks of maturity, and that's the will of the Lord for every single one of us that are here, that we continue to move uh, towards maturity and growing in the Word of God and in our uh, walk with the Lord. And then last week in chapter 6, we probably saw one of the strongest warnings in the entire New Testament, if not the Bible, in falling away from Christ. And we talked about those passages, specifically verses 4 through 6, quite extensively, and if you didn't hear the teaching, I would encourage you to, to go on our website. You can listen to the message, and it will bring, I'm sure, to, to many of you that wonder about those verses, that warning there, some clarity and understanding, and, and hopefully be able to encourage you as well. But now as we continue and finish up chapter 6, we're going to see that the, the writer here is going to encourage them and exhort them. Let's begin to read that in verse 9, but beloved, uh, it's a term of endearment. We are confident of better things concerning you, 
yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And I've given you this warning about spiritual immaturity and about falling away, verse 6. But here he knows, the writer, that it would be very appropriate, and this is a time to begin to build them up, to encourage them. It, it's, that's in order right now because the words in the previous chapter, actually at the end of chapter 5, moving into chapter 6, as we saw, were very heavy and very sobering. And he doesn't want them to feel in despair or discouraged or a sense of hopelessness. So he writes to them, I'm convinced of better things in your case. And that really is the words of one who has a pastor's heart, one who has a caring heart. And it's something, a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures, that in the scriptures, there's some very sobering things that are given to us. There's warnings given to us. There's rebuke. There's correction, perhaps, that is for us as we read God's word. But always we see that the Lord doesn't leave us backed into a corner, feeling despair or hopeless or, or no answer to, to the situation that we find ourselves in. The Lord always in his word encourages up and, and lifts us up and, and to turn to him and to trust in his word. There's always hope in the Lord and hope in the word of God. And that's something that I want to do is I teach because if I teach with integrity the word of God, there are going to be those warnings given to us as we go through it line upon line and precept upon precept, chapter by chapter, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. Those warnings are there, the corrections, the rebukes, all those things. But it's for our edification, right? And, and to encourage you to move in those things that perhaps that we need to, to always know that there, there's hope and reassurance, reassurance from the Lord that's the pattern we see in the scripture, and that's the pattern that we are to have with others. Because as you're linked to people in your life, listen, parents, whether it's to your kids, or maybe it's to somebody else, a family member, that you have to give some sobering warnings, that if you continue in this way, it's not going to be good. God doesn't want you to live this way. This is what God's word declared, that as much as we can with that warning is going to be trying to lift them up in edification. Turn to the Lord. There's forgiveness in him. He wants to work in your life. He desires to, to, for you to surrender to him. And so that's something to keep in mind. But here we see that the writer is saying, I have confidence in you. Uh, you're not going to go in that direction of falling away and spiritual immaturity. And more importantly, know that God has not forgotten about you. He knows and he remembers your work and love that you have shown him in the helping of the other believers and are continuing to do so. In all of our lives, listen, I think that we know that we're going to go through seasons of discouragement. We're going to go through seasons where we get down. And, and it can be perhaps in the workplace. Maybe some of you come into this place uh, today and you're discouraged at work. Maybe you feel like you're not appreciated by your coworkers or by your boss. Uh, maybe you feel like you're being held out at arm's length. Maybe it's mom as you're raising your children in the ways of the Lord. You go through discouragement. Or maybe dads, as you're working hard to support your family. And, and that's why it's very, very imperative that we, as 
the body of Christ because the same thing happens in the body of Christ. We can go as we serve the Lord and as we walk with the Lord, go through those times of discouragement. We wondering, Lord, am I doing any good? Am I being a blessing to others? Am I being used in the way that you want me to or in the way I could or should be? And I know that in my 25 years of ministry that I've gone through seasons of discouragement and wondering and being down. And even as David would write in the Psalms, oh, why are you so cast down, oh, my soul? And we can go through that and we need to be encouraged and uplifted by the word of God. And we need to encourage one another. And I pray that that happens here. And it's important for, for bosses, employers, encourage your workers as much as you can. That husband, you express your appreciation to your wife and wives to your husband who's working hard for you. And the same thing in the body of Christ, to encourage each other. You know, the Bible says that we're to provoke one another for good works. Not only provoking, but continue to encourage. Don't give up. Keep going. Know that the Lord sees you, and that's the most important thing that is the point here as the writer says, God sees what you do in service to others. And I know that when we are serving others in those difficult times, we begin to wonder, maybe you're teaching children in the children's ministry. And if you are, I'm sure you've walked away at times thinking, did the kids get anything out of the lesson? Did they listen Maybe you're ministering to youth. Maybe you're discipling somebody. You're serving in some way. And you wonder, are you being effective? The Lord, do you see me? He does see you, and he is not unjust. And he will reward you as you continue to serve the Lord humbly, out of love for him. He knows and he sees and will reward you when you go home to be with him. Keep that in mind as you're serving the Lord. And in those times of discouragement and feeling down and wondering if this is important, your ministry, wherever God has placed you, gifts he's given to you, opportunities before you, that it is important to God. And Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian believers, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, he says that you be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And that is a verse that I have to go back to over and over again. Your labor is not in vain. And he continues to encourage them, verse 11, as we read, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hey, keep going. Keep serving the Lord. Keep looking to Jesus. Remember that God sees you. Keep up the good work. Press on with the hope until the end. Uh, imitate those who inherit God's promises. Don't become sluggish. And as discouraged as these Hebrew Christians were, it would be very easy for them to become sluggish. I mean, think about it. Here they are being persecuted, you know, uh, for coming to Christ. Uh, they're meeting in small houses, in small groups. Uh, it seems like they're not very important. Uh, they probably wonder about their history. Was it all for nothing? I mean, the temple and the and the feast and the sacrifices and the temple worship and, and the blowing of the trumpets, and they would become sluggish. They would become discouraged very easily. And it is the same with you and I today, isn't it? 
For whatever reason it might be, we do know this, that the world doesn't applaud us for being Christians. And the world will make fun of us and come down on us and hold us out at arm's length. We know that the culture today is that uh, it's looking down more and more unfavorably upon us as Christians. The difficulties that we face in life, the uncertainty that we see all around us can cause us to be sluggish, can really bring discouragement to you and to me. And what we are to do is make sure that in the body of Christ that we are encouraging each other, that we're blessing one another, that we're just giving those words of, of keep going, the Lord sees you. And I know that when I become discouraged, that it seems like, this has happened over and over again, that all of a sudden I'll get a card from somebody who said that, you know, what you taught was a real blessing to me. Or I'll get an email or something that the Lord just reminds me that, that yes, he is working through me and in me. And, and so that's why we want to do that with one another, not tear each other down, but to build each other up, Right? That's what I want to be known as a church, Calvary Chapel. Not that we're just being critical and tearing each other down and, and all of this, but we're building each other up, that we're encouraging one another. It's kind of like we have a tradition, me and my family, on Thanksgiving, we run the turkey trot. Don't ask me why, but we just do it. And 3.2 miles, 5K, we actually enjoy it. And you have those people when you run the race that are at certain points, and they're at the corner, and they're saying, Go! Keep running. You're doing good. Don't quit. You're almost there. You know, you got two miles left to go and, and all of this. <laughs> Keep running. Here I come limping by, huffing and puffing and all of this. It gets, it gets harder the older you get. And as we journey through life, you may feel like that you're just kind of limping in your spiritual walk, your spiritual run. You may be huffing and puffing. You may feel like quitting. And I want to tell you this morning that the Lord says to you personally, don't stop. That I see you. And this is important. And I'm going to reward you and remember your labor of love. And he's the one that desires for us to press on as we're told all throughout Scripture to fight the good fight, to endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ, to keep the faith, to finish the race that is set before us. And as we become discouraged and weary and we wonder, Lord, do you see me? And Lord, do you care about me and what it is that I do? Are your promises for me or are they just for everyone else? That is in those times that we can see the, God's faithfulness and goodness and his love towards us. And to know that he is our strength. He desires to guide us. He doesn't want us to become sluggish. Don't give in to discouragement, but press on and inherit the promises. I can't help but think about David. David was anointed the king of Israel when he was just young. And all of a sudden, he spent how many years running from Saul? David, for about 12, 13 years, he's running from Saul. It's near the end of that time. He's so discouraged. He ends up going to the enemy's territory, the Philistine territory, with all his mighty men, the wives and families, and, and they go to Ziglag, and they're there in Ziglag. And David and his mighty men, they leave for a short time, and here comes the Amalekites. They burn down the homes. They take 
you know, David and his mighty men, their wives, their children, take the spoils. And when David and his mighty men came back and, and saw the smoke and their families are gone and anything that they had was gone because of the Amalekites taking them, we see that David and his mighty men, it tells us, were greatly distressed. And I'm sure that David must have thought, Lord, here I am running from Saul from all these years. You promised. And you gave me the calling that I'm going to be the king. And it just seems like it's one disaster after another. But it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord, and that's what you and I are to do. And as he was strengthened in the Lord, he goes back to the guys, he says, strap on your swords. We're going to go get our families back. And that's what David did. And it would be shortly after that that he became the king of Israel. And that's what you and I are to do when we're discouraged and distressed. Go to him, be strengthened by him, encouraged and renewed. And the writer here continues to stress how reliable God's promises are as an example of one who endured through faith and patience that is told to us, inherited the promises, uh, Abraham, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So they have a history, right, the initial reader. They know the Old Testament. They know uh, about the law. They know about the priesthood. They know the stories of the Old Testament. And they know about the story of Abraham. They would be familiar with that. That was a part of their history. And certainly, as Abraham is mentioned, they would think back to how God came to Abraham when him and Sarah had no children, gave the promise that I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham, and, and great is going to be your descendants like the stars of heaven. And Abraham, at 75 years old at that time, would leave his, his father's house, come unto Canaan, and that promise would be reiterated in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis that, Abraham, I want to make you a, a great nation. And look at the stars of heaven. That's the number of your descendants. And Abraham didn't have any children at that time. So in chapter 15, he says, Lord, is the promise going to go through my servant Eleazar? Is, is he the heir? The Lord said, no, Abraham. Your heir to offspring will come from your own body. And then in verse 6 of chapter 15, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Well, more years passed by and Sarah says to her husband Abraham, nothing's happening. I'm still barren. So we need to give God a hand. We need to help him out. So why don't you take my maidservant Hagar and have a son with her? And Abraham agrees to it and Ishmael is born. And God would come to Abraham and say, it's not Ishmael that the covenant, the promise, the, uh, that uh, he's going to be the heir. It's not him. It's going to be a son that's going to come from you and Sarah. And finally, as most of you know, that in chapter 21, after 25 years, when Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah was 90 years old, the promise was fulfilled. And what can happen to us as Christians is we know God's promise he gives us his word, and we think, well, Lord, you got to work in this way at this time. Uh, Lord, i got to give you a hand, make things happen. We doubt, we want God to hurry, 
we lose patience, that we lean on our own understanding rather than leaning on the Lord and waiting on Him. And it is in that period of waiting that we grow sluggish and we get impatient and we get very discouraged. The Bible has a lot to say about waiting on the Lord. We live, as I mentioned to you, in a culture where we like things to happen right away, don't we? Instantly. We have instant communication. We don't like to wait in line uh, for, you know, our hamburger, fast food, whatever. We just, we want things right away. Now listen, that may be okay when you go to get a Whopper at Burger King and you want it your way. But don't carry that into your Christian life. Because it's very important that we learn to wait on the Lord. Matter of fact, we're going to see that in just a couple weeks in Isaiah chapter 30, going through the book of Isaiah, that the Lord says to wait on Him. He'll be gracious to those who wait on Him. And it's a hard thing to do, but we need to wait on the Lord, knowing that His promises are true for us and that He will bring it to pass. He, he continues writing here in verse 16, For men indeed swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end to, of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God, of course, uh, cannot swear by anything greater than himself, when we give an oath, we swear by something, or uh, it's always someone that, something that's greater. Now, when we were kids, we used to play games with our, you know, oaths and all that. Maybe your kids do that. Maybe you did that. You know how it works. Did you take my candy? No. You swear? I swear. You swear on the Bible? I swear on the Bible. You swear on a stack of Bibles? You know how that goes. Just kind of playing games in that way. And we did that as kids. Perhaps you did as well. But here, as we look at this, if God makes an oath, verse 13, there is no one greater than himself, so he swore by himself. And then verse 16, men indeed swear by the greater. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, by the way, we see that Jesus rebuked the religious leaders because they would play games with their oaths and with their swearing and all of this. And you recall that he would say to them that, that you swear by the temple, it's nothing. You swear by the gold in the temple, well, then you say you have to perform it. You swear by an altar, it's nothing. Swear by the gift on the altar, then okay, I'm obligated to keep it. And Jesus said... If you swear on the temple, then swear to him who dwells in the temple is what you're doing. So don't be playing games when it comes to giving their word. You don't have to give oaths. And what he tells you and I as Christians that we're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Listen, that's very important. Our word should mean something as Christians. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And know this, that it's okay to say no at times. But we should be truthful. We should speak with integrity. That when we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, it's no. But not to play games. And Christians, we like to do that. Oh, I'll be there if it's God's will. Oh, if the Lord, you know, speaks to me and maybe we'll, you know, do this and not making any commitment or anything like that. 
Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be a man or woman of integrity when you give your word. So I think that's an important principle for us as we live our lives. So back to our text here. You know, here uh, that the writer of Hebrews is getting across here that when God gives his word, it's true. It will come to pass. You can be sure of it. God said to Abraham, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply. Abraham is going to happen. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to argue. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to become sluggish. It's going to happen. I've spoken. I've given you my word. It's impossible for God to lie. I have that underlined in my Bible. He doesn't go back on his word. His word is certain. So the two immutable or unchanging things are, number one, his word, which is alone is enough, and then second of all, his oath, which he doesn't have to give, but why does he give it? He gives it for our sake. So we know that we have a refuge and a hope now, again, the initial reader reading that word refuge might think back in the Old Testament, thinking about Numbers chapter 35. I'm sure that a lot of you, you remember Numbers chapter 35, right? But in that chapter is given the instructions of the children of Israel when they go into the promised land, that what you're going to do is you're going to set up these cities of refuge. And, and that city of refuge that was placed throughout the lands was for a person to flee to and find protection, refuge, safety, if they were being chased by the avenger of blood. Now you say, what's the avenger of blood? Let's say you're out working in the field with somebody, you're swinging an, an axe or a pick, and the head of that axe, the head of that pick comes off and hits that person in the head, they end up dying. Well, there was no police force back there. It wasn't that way. And so the relatives of that person that ended up dying would be called the avenger of blood, to go after the manslayer, to go after that person, to bring them to, to justice or avenge the death of their, their loved one. So these cities of refuge were placed within one day's journey from wherever you were in Israel that you can go to and you found protection there. There was a place of refuge that was there until it all got straightened out. And as we look at this, we see that this is a point that's being made. Um, they would stay there. Uh, the only way that, uh, that they were able to leave freely is when the death of the high priest happened. And it's all very interesting as you read it. The point that the writer is making here is that he wants them to know in us that God has given his word. And as Psalm chapter 46, verse 1 tells us, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And more than 15 other places in the Psalms does it speak as God as being our refuge. You see in Numbers chapter 35, those cities of refuge were places, again, that they can go to. They were open to all who had need. It was a place that you lived in, the only alternative to someone in need uh, freedom uh, coming by the death of the high priest. You Hebrew Christians and you Christians at Calvary Chapel know this, that Jesus is your refuge, that he is your safety, that you stay with him. Don't go outside of him to that which won't save you. And know that there's an enemy out there that he's out to destroy you. 
and that our great high priest, that he died, that we might be free, free from the penalty of sin and desiring to free us from the power of sin in our lives. Now, the city of refuge was only for those who the judges determined were innocent. Hey, it was an accident. You can dwell here in the city. One distinction with us coming to Jesus is we're all guilty. But we find forgiveness. And we're declared innocent because Jesus took the guilt and shame and he tasted death for all of us. So I want to encourage all of us this morning, listen, do not leave your refuge, Jesus. You flee to him. Verse 18, he is the hope before us. Know that this promise has been given. It is sure, and he is our life. And then as we finish this morning, this hope we have, because he is our hope, as an anchor of the soul, I like that, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, in chapter 2, we were told not to drift away, be steadfast, be anchored to Jesus, to the word of God that has been given to us. That's your anchor. And the storms will come in our lives to every single one of us. And if we are not, listen, anchored to the word of God, if you're not anchored to Jesus, then you're going to be tossed to and fro. We know that there's a lot of advice out there in the world a lot of people that give worldly answers to solve our problems. But there's so much uncertainty. There's so much craziness. Know that God's word is true and God's word is certain. And you be anchored to the unchangeable word of God. And it is Satan that desires us to, to not live in, and believe in the importance of the word of God. It's Satan that desires to twist and confuse the word of God. To try to get us to believe it's not important to know the word of god and, and there's a change here all of a sudden it seems like but there's a connection that the presence enters behind the veil speaking of jesus he's a forerunner the greek word points to the example of a reconnaissance man in the military or if the anchor imagery is still in mind sailors from the ship would get into a smaller ship they go they get the anchor and get, put it in a a secure place is what they would do. In any case, the word speaks of someone who goes forward with others to follow. This forerunner who goes behind the veil becoming high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And what we're being set up for is what's going to be said to us in the next few chapters, that Jesus' priesthood, his priesthood is superior, that he ministers in a superior tabernacle, that is the heavenly tabernacle. It's superior than the earthly tabernacle. Even though the earthly tabernacle was shown the pattern uh, according to the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus' priesthood in, is superior. He ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. And then we're going to see that his sacrifice is superior to the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. That Jesus went behind the veil to offer his blood as a sacrifice. And it was accepted to take away sin once and for all. You see, Aaron, he would go into the tabernacle on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, make, you know, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation, and he would head right back out. The next year, back in, back out. Next year, for 1,500 years, this is going on. Why? Because it wasn't enough. Jesus, his sacrifice, 
He shed his blood as the final atonement for us and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. Aaron never sat down. But what Jesus did, we follow to be with him because of what he did. This would be powerful to them, and I pray over the next couple of weeks, listen, that it's very, very powerful to you and to me as we see that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for forgiveness of sin and salvation, and we follow our great high priest. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, these encouraging words and exhortation given to us. We need that because we can become discouraged. We become sluggish, Lord. We begin our faith to falter. We become weak spiritually. And I pray that every single person was lifted up this morning to keep pressing on and looking to you, to know that you're the faithful, merciful, compassionate, sympathetic high priest. Your word is true for us. Your salvation is sure. And I want to pray for anyone who may be here is out in the coffee shop or in the sanctuary or listening on live stream or maybe later on the radio, that if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He is your salvation. You see, in a few minutes, we're going to take of communion. It symbolizes what Jesus, remembering what He did for us, His body broken for us, His blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. It's for the believer. This new covenant that we've entered into, and Jesus Christ went to that cross because of His love for you and died for you specifically, took your sins upon himself, bore your sins, made atonement for your sin, and then was put into a tomb, and he rose again, and he conquered sin and death. He is your hope. He's the captain or the completer of your salvation. And as we ask you to come to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation, come to him personally, recognizing your need to be saved, that he is the Savior of the world, to be your Savior personally. We're not asking you to join a church, Calvary Chapel. We're not asking you to join religiousness. We're asking you to have a personal relationship with Jesus, to have forgiveness, to have the assurance of salvation, and to experience that abundant life as you become a new creature in Christ, surrendered to Him. He loves you so much. His promises are true for you, and the invitation is given to you. You can pray right where you are, sincerely, that, Jesus, I come to you, I realize that you are the captain of my salvation, that you are our Lord and Savior. So I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I have sinned. Forgive me. I believe you're alive, speaking to my heart, and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life and my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I believe your word is true. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. I thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name. And after we take communion here, which we're going to do in just a minute, that, that Pastor Jim's going to be up front. I, I want you to come up and tell him the decision you made as we close. But this morning, Christians, as we hold the elements in our hands, we'll partake of communion together. Continue to just being a, a mindset, an attitude of worship, thanking the Lord for what he has done for us. In Jesus' name.